Good morning. Thank you, Hershey. Great job. I still wonder how how that much sound comes out of something that small. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to Matthew chapter 25 again. Matthew chapter 25. We'll begin looking in verse number 1. In his little book, Laughter in Appalachia, Fred Park tells a story about a man named Quill. Quill lived way back in the woods where he hunted and fished with little regard to the seasons or the laws. Sound familiar? Sounds like he might live around here. After all, he knew the woods better than the game warden did. The game warden had been trying to catch Quill and his illicit activities for quite some time. He knew that Quill had to get up early in the morning to go fishing, and so the game warden sneaked down to his house in the middle of the night and hid on the top of Quill's house. This way he knew that no matter what he did in the morning, he would be able to follow him. His plan was to hide in the woods, wait until Quill had a stringer full of illegal fish, and then catch it. As it started to get a little bit toward daylight, Game warden heard Quill get up and start a fire, put on the coffee. His stomach started churning and growling when he smelled the coffee and the frying ham and the fresh biscuits in the oven. He'd hardly contain himself. Suddenly, Quill walked out onto the front porch and he hollered, Come on down here and get some of this coffee and biscuits while they're hot. I know you're out there. The game warden couldn't believe it. He climbed down, he walked up to the porch and into the house, and he exclaimed, well, how did you know that I was out there? Quill said, I didn't. I walk out there every morning and say the same thing, just in case you are. Now, Quill may not have been a genius, but he knew what it meant to take precautions, and he was ready. The disciples, way back in chapter 24 and verse 3, asked Jesus the timing of his return. They wanted to know when he was going to return. And Jesus replied that they could not know. He said that they could see the general signs, and judging by the increase in frequency and intensity, they could judge that the end was near. But he said even that being known, he would still come suddenly and unexpectedly. Therefore, they must be ready. Being ready meant actively living in faithfulness to God. It's more than just calling yourself a Christian. It's more than just a name. Dennis was a guy from Katy, Texas who had a an emergency, and he needed his best suit dry cleaned because he was leaving on a trip the next morning. He remembered that there was a store with a huge sign across town that said, One Hour Dry Cleaning. That was way on the other side of town, but he drove out of his way to drop off his suit. And after the clerk had filled out all the necessary information, he said, I have some errands to run and I'll be back in a little over an hour to pick up my suit. 
She said, I can't get this back to you until Thursday. She said, I thought you did dry cleaning in an hour. Oh no, she replied, that's just the name of our store. We don't actually do that. There are many folks today who wear a sign that says Christian, but actually they failed to deliver the goods. And what has come, become known as the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus again emphasizes to his disciples the need to be ready for his return. Now remember, Jesus is just hours before his crucifixion. He knew that his time on earth was short. He could have preached and taught on anything, any subject. And yet he decided at this crucial time to speak about his return. Let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, to understand this parable, we need to understand the setting. The setting of this parable is a first-century Jewish wedding. Marriages at that time were very different from what we experience in our own that day. In Jewish customs of that day, wedding had three phases. First of all, there was the arrangement phase. Marriages were arranged by the parents, usually while the children were still quite young. The groom's family provided a dowry to the bride's father, who was to put that money in trust for the bride. In the event of a divorce or the death of her husband, this was to provide some support for her. The second phase of the Jewish wedding was the betrothal. At the betrothal, the bride and groom actually exchanged vows before family and friends. The couple is now officially married. Although the marriage is not consummated and the couple does not live together, legally they are married. And it can only be ended by divorce or death. During this time, the groom prepares a home for his bride. The third phase was the wedding feast. 
It was this third phase that Jesus is referring to in this parable. In this phase, when the groom has everything ready, when he has either built a room onto his parents' home or he has built a home of his own, and everything is completed and ready for the bride to move in, then, usually at night, he will take a procession of his friends to the bride's parents and claim her as his own. Then he will lead a procession through the streets of the city back to the new home for a wedding feast. It was a joyous experience for the bride and for the groom and for their friends. The point being that the bride did not know exactly when the groom would be coming. So she had to stay ready. I want you to note with me four things this morning as we look at our text. First, all have been invited to a banquet. Our first consideration has to be to whom is this parable addressed? This is not about people who have outright rejected Jesus and have no use for Jesus. Instead of speaking of people who are obviously believers or obviously unbelievers, Jesus seems to speak to those people who look like believers and may even think they are believers, but who are not ready when he comes. It is interesting that in the parable, the bridesmaids all appear to be alike. They all thought of themselves as bridegrooms who were associated and acquainted with the groom. They were all dressed alike. They were all expecting the bridegroom. When the bridegroom was delayed, they fell asleep. They all had lamps. All of them trimmed their lamps. They all wanted to be a part of the wedding feast, but not all of them were prepared. Some of them had failed to bring oil for their lamps, as unimaginable as that may seem. There's a warning from this parable. Be sure that you are prepared. It is possible to look just like everyone else, talk like everyone else, carry a Bible, desire to go to heaven, attend church, think of yourself as a Christian, and yet ultimately be unprepared. It is possible to know about Christ without knowing Christ. It is possible to know the Bible and not be living for the God of the Bible and not be doing what the Bible says. It is possible to be a nice person and know all the right doctrine yet have no relationship with God. It's possible to look like everyone else and have your Christianity on the surface while never allowing it to penetrate to who you are and change the way you live. Secondly, I want you to notice readiness will be revealed by crisis. Readiness will be revealed by crisis. This this parable is about the final judgment. And the root word of judgment is division. The Greek word is krisis, which is and has been retained into English almost unchanged except for a slight variation in spelling. It is our word crisis. 
the coming of the bridegroom created a great crisis in the parable, especially for the unprepared. Verse 6 and 7, at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. If the return of the Lord Jesus and the division it will cause will bring out the truth, the true condition of those who profess Christianity, but who are not actually born again. Isn't it also the case that their condition can be revealed by lesser, but nevertheless real crisis experiences now? If this is so, then you can anticipate the results of the final judgment by the way that you react to crisis in your life now. If you look at your life and you notice how you react when crisis come in your life and you judge whether or not you reacted as a Christian should, then you will know how you are going to react to that final crisis of the Lord's return. The third thing is being prepared is non-transferable. Verses 8 and 9, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. The foolish bridemaids saw that they didn't have enough oil, and they asked their wise friends to loan them some of theirs. But this was not possible. Their refusal may seem to us selfish and unkind, unless you really stop to think about the situation. To loan part of the oil would mean that no one had enough oil. It still might seem that the charitable thing to do would be to share, even if that meant that you would run out of oil. But the story is not about charity. The parable reveals that when the Lord returns, each person will have to stand on his or her own feet. The larger point is that one cannot borrow another's faith. Just as one person cannot transfer part of their physical life to another, neither can a person share their spiritual life. This means that another person's faith will not cover you. Just because you're raised in a Christian home, just because you're in a church with other people of faith, does not necessarily mean that you have faith. It will not rub off on you just because you're sitting next to someone who has a vital relationship with Jesus. You can't catch faith like a cold. You can't borrow it from your friends. You cannot get it from your parents. You can learn from someone else's faith, but you can't use it and you can't lean on it. God has no grandchildren. God only has children. Your faith must be your own. It's good for us to be able to see faith of our fathers living still. 
but it is even more necessary to be able to sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I have my own faith. The Jews of Jesus' day were fond of calling Abraham their father. They were the physical descendants of Abraham. And they assumed that they were also the spiritual descendants. But one day, as Jesus saw them coming toward them, He said in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, Do not think you say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham out of these stones. You may have a great heritage, God is saying, but you need to make that heritage your own personal experience. There is no substitute for being prepared. The fourth point, lost opportunities cannot be regained, and the door of opportunity will one day be closed. Verse 10, And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. The most alarming words in this parable have to be, and the door was shut. And the door was shut. There's an often awful finality about those words. It means that the door was shut, and it would remain shut. It would not be opened again. Today, the door of salvation is wide open. It's wide open to all. Today, the door to heaven is open. But this text is a reminder that it will not always be so. The young women who find themselves shut out of the banquet can hardly believe that the door has been closed to them. They cry out, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. In real life, in our world, we would expect the groom to say, Hey, no problem. We're wondering where you guys went. Come on in. But Jesus gives us a surprise ending to the story by saying, And the bridegroom answered and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. The foolish bridesmaids had cried out, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. Does that language sound familiar to you? Well, it should. It sounds like Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. The point is that the five foolish girls and the people in Matthew chapter 7 fully expected to gain entrance. They looked like the other five who were inside, just like the people in Matthew 7 knew the language and even performed religious deeds. But the bottom line is there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Once the door was shut, 
it would not be opened again no matter how long they stood outside or how loudly they shouted. In verse 13, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The parable of the ten virgins is given to show the incalculable importance of being spiritually prepared to meet Christ, either at our own death or at His second coming. So, when are we ready? We are ready when our relationships with God and our relationship with others is what they should be. We're ready at any moment of the day, whether in the privacy of our home or the apartment of our girlfriend or in the recesses of our mind, we are not ashamed to have the Lord meet us. We are also ready when we are not ashamed that our credit card accounts are being made public. We're ready when all of our past grievances have been acquitted. Just before General Eisenhower died, Dr. Billy Graham was invited to visit him at Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. He was told that he could stay 30 minutes. When he went in, the ex-president was wearing his usual big smile, even though he knew that he didn't have long to live. Later, Dr. Graham told what happened. He said, when the 30 minutes were up, he asked me to stay longer, and he said to me, Billy, I want you to tell me again how I can be sure that my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to heaven because nothing else matters now. Dr. Graham said, I took my New Testament and I read him scriptures. I pointed out that, there, that <clears throat> we are not going to heaven because of our good works or because of our money that we've given to the church. We are going to heaven totally and completely on the basis of the merits of what Jesus did on the cross. Therefore, he could rest in the comfort that Jesus had paid it all. After the prayer, President Eisenhower said, Thank you, I'm ready. No one is ready to meet God in death until they're ready to meet Him in life. It's amazing to realize that so many of us prepare for life, but we fail to prepare for eternity. We get our degrees from colleges and universities. We position ourselves for the right jobs. We set our career goals for 10 years in advance. We know when and where we want to retire, and yet we totally disregard the most important reality of all, and that is our relationship with God until it's too late and we are unprepared. I want to close with just sharing a portion of a, a poem that a lady by the name of Annie Johnson Flint wrote. I think she describes so well. What are we watching? It is not for a sign we are watching. For wonders above and below. The pouring out of vials of judgment or the sounding of trumpets of woe. 
It is not for a day we are looking, nor even the time yet to be, when the earth shall be filled with God's glory as the waters cover the sea. We wait for the Lord, our beloved, our comforter, master, and friend. The substance of all that we hope for, the beginning of faith and its end, we watch for our Savior and Bridegroom who loved us and made us His own. For Him we are looking and longing for Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, it's possible that everyone under the sound of my voice is prepared. They have come to You repented of their sins, asked to be forgiven, accepted the payment that Jesus made on the cross. But it's also possible that there's someone here that has not done that. They are unprepared. They may look just like the person sitting next to them, but they know in their heart of hearts that all is not right. And when they think of the end, or they think of your return, they think of their own death, it brings fear to them. Lord, I pray you'd help them to realize that they can bring this to finality today. That they can leave here knowing that they have a place in heaven as sure as the day they arrive. The knowledge that they have turned to you in faith. Ask, Lord, to be forgiven of their sins and accept what Jesus did on the cross. For all of us, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember, to remember what has been done for us and to live in the light of your coming. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.